Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. The Hi, everybody. Welcome back here. This is Rick Wagner, and I'm getting it right, at least uh, in my mind, which feels pretty right, here on Kansas City KGLN. Thanks for joining us here again this weekend. We appreciate your listenership, as always. And you can hear us, for those of you listening already, on the Internet. And, of course, you can get our podcast. Guys, you can get it on um, Amazon and iTunes. And you can go to our website, TheRickWagnerShow.com. That's TheRickWagnerShow.com. And punch right into them and look at a lot of the stories we talk about and a whole lot more stories that we have marked on that page from news feeds from all sorts of conservative sites. And we encourage you to go to it. And I don't even sell you anything. I know. I'm. What's wrong with me? I thought I was a capitalist. This is a busy week, and it's a busy week in the law. There's three things, really, that jump out at us. And we'll try and talk about them a tiny bit, uh, each one of them. I mean, any one of them could take a long time. In my mind, but we will try and talk a little bit about them, maybe with a couple of different observations than you've been hearing since then. Of course, we have Hunter Biden thing going on, you know, with it, with his charges as they might as uh, we call them, uh, and the people have been trying to uh, coerce or ask, I guess, would be a better way to put uh, in through the media that the judge reject the plea deal, and judges can do that. Um, certainly in Colorado and in Delaware and most states. The judge can look at all the factors that go into the alleged crime and decide if the plea agreement meets the needs of justice, in, at least as they interpret it, and then they make findings. And most of the time, they're going to accept the plea agreement because what's going to happen is they don't have all of the facts. Remember, they're not part of the investigation. Uh, they can ask questions uh, when they are considering the plea agreement. But, you know, they don't have access to everything, and, and they shouldn't. I mean, not supposed, they're supposed to be impartial and not part of either side. But when you go in the courtroom and you have this kind of agreement, you have two sides arguing it, and nobody arguing against it. You have the prosecution arguing for it because it's their idea, uh, or at least a, the joint idea, and the defense because they must have agreed to it and wanted it, or they wouldn't have agreed to it. So there's nobody really arguing against it. So it's unlikely. It's possible, but it's unlikely. And there's some, a couple of little things about that particular case I want to talk about, too. But don't forget, we also have the Supreme Court's momentous, but I don't think unexpected decision on affirmative action that, of course, lights up all of the usual ones. And I looked at Katanji Brown-Jackson, her uh, dissent, like 29-page dissent or this or that, and it's just essentially you ought to be able to do it. I don't know what takes 29 pages. And the justices just don't, you know, don't care, and uh, they're... They're divorced from reality of all the bad things that are going on. And this kind of uh, race-based admissions is uh, one of the only ways to make – I mean, it just it, – it, it doesn't really address the the arguments that were addressed in that decision. We'll try and talk about that a little bit. And, of course, the third thing is this Scott Peterson. And some of you may – when you say Scott Peterson may pop back to that murder and uh, the uh, Scott Peterson, California, and his missing wife. Now, this Scott Peterson – is the deputy at the Parkland shooting who did not go in, remember? He essentially locked the building down, and there's video of him uh, behind a car and a few other things 
not going in as he was supposed to do because he was the school resource officer for that uh, school. He did not go in and attempt to stop anybody. And so he he was put on trial criminally for that, and he was found not guilty. And without getting into the specific charges or anything like that, the, the real crux of it was, uh, was his duty to perform those acts so great that not performing them rose to a criminal act? And it was going to be a high bar to go over. But I think that I understand why the prosecutors wanted to put it in front of a jury to say, you know, this is the legal standard of if you're when you're supposed to act, even as a peace officer. And did his inaction rise to the level of a crime? And boy, it's difficult in most under most state law situations to find inaction to be a criminal offense. Standing on the beach and being a powerful swimmer and watching somebody drown without trying to assist them, not a criminal offense in most situations. And this is what the defense argued. And I'm sure that they argued a lot of that and they tried to argue that, look, you know, just because you're not necessarily the bravest guy in the world. Uh, I mean, I have personal feelings about that that are very, very strong about that. And I wasn't on the jury. I won't tell you what my opinion is. I'm just saying that I understand what they were arguing. They were arguing that in under the law and, and in Florida, I'm sure it's this way too, that inaction in general is not to be considered a crime. Now they crafted it in a way that, you know, to present it to the jury that there was an arguable case that it could be. And he was looking at some significant time. But the jury ultimately found him not guilty of that. I doubt they feel good about it. But their decision was based on what they heard in the courtroom and the state of Florida law. I understand it because if you start getting into inaction as being a criminal offense, it opens up a lot of doors beyond an event like this just because it's a horrific event and we have strong feelings about his behavior. If you start finding that, and I'm sure many of you out there can start thinking about situations that could be used very inappropriately. And so uh, I think the jurors felt like they were forced to do something that, you know, because of the law, not because of the action. And that's that's probably the way it should be. Is uh you know, a case a bad case like this uh it's it's dis- it's disturbing to me to even think about what happened there. Um, and we saw it again in Uvalde. Uh, I don't know if Texas will consider doing something like this. Uh, I don't know what some of those officers were doing, standing in the hallways with gunshots were going off down there. I don't know. I mean, all of us, it's easy to be tough when you're not there. But I'd like to think that most of us would have perhaps done things differently. Or, you know, the command staff there, if you remember Uvalde, it was very confusing about who was uh, in charge and who was giving orders. Remember the chief wasn't on site for a long time, and it was just the whole thing was just a mess. And it, it's it's beyond heartbreaking what goes on there. And the idea, I don't can't even picture it in my head, frankly, what was happening there. I it, It's too disturbing uh, an image. But uh, so he was found not guilty of that. Now, does it erase culpability in a moral and ethical sense? Yeah, no, I don't think so at all.
the law doesn't remove culpability. Just because you're not guilty doesn't mean you're innocent. Right? You're innocent until proven guilty. But if you can't prove you're guilty in other regards, in our ethical and moral eyes, um, it does not remove that. So he has to live with that. And uh, I, uh, unless he's a very twisted person, it's not going to be fun. But then the other thing, of, of course, is uh, going back to, and I don't think we have enough time, but uh, I wanted to get into Hunter Biden a little bit. Because there's some aspects of the Hunter Biden case I haven't heard really talked about that I've been thinking about and I and I wonder about and I'd like to hear what they are. And the main one is, because we might have enough time, the main one is, is do these sort of fluff ball charges, well, they had, they, in some instances, they carry some prison time, but because of this plea agreement, they're not going to carry any time. And most people feel like that they were, that they were just instituted to sort of say, yeah, we did something. And the fact that they came out about the same time as the Trump indictment, people kind of shake their heads and say, well, you know, I think we can kind of see through that a little bit, right? Uh, and you ought to be able to see it. it was, the timing is just too much. And the, the audacity of the Justice Department now, the boldness of the way they act uh, in the face of things uh, is really kind of startling. They, uh, I mean, clearly they thought if they did this that, you know, people, a lot of people are going to say, wow, wasn't this convenient? This timing after all this time that it just should happen to ha- during this time during the Trump indictment? Uh, that kind of boldness is almost on the level of some of the things they're doing anyway. But the idea that they don't care what people think and they're going to throw things out there as they darn well please and let you think about it any way you want. That's troubling. But I got a couple hey, more. Everybody, thanks for sticking around. Rick Wagner still here, getting it right here on KNZZ KGLN. I wanted to finish up what we were talking about, the Hunter Biden thing, and trying to bring a little different uh, aspect to it. Like I said, the what was interesting about it to begin with was the brazenness of it, right? The boldness, as I said in the last segment, of them releasing this during the Trump indictment and all of this. Of course, we all know what's going on here. There's just too much evidence out there. It's too distracting. Hunter needs to have something done, something that they can take, push him through the court system, no real penalty of any significance. And they can say, see, we're fair, and now you can stop making all this noise about nothing happening to Hunter, and just move on from that. And it's so obvious what's going on, and they just don't really care. They just want to be able to say that, and they just want to give some ammunition, if you want to call it that, to uh, their assistance uh, in the mainstream media and be able to say, well, we need to move on from that. I mean, Hunter's paid his due, you know. Here's the thing that I'm interested in, and I haven't been able to get a good answer to it, and this involves double jeopardy. Now, as most of you know, it's the idea that you cannot be placed in the hazard or on trial twice for the same offense. What that really means when you get down to it is that I can't recharge you for a crime or another crime that involves the same factual circumstance. Right. So if you go to trial, let's say, and you're found guilty or you plead guilty to, let's say, first degree assault. Or no, let's change it around. You plead guilty to third degree assault. You enter a plea. 
You get sentenced for whatever it is, and then that's it. And subsequently to that, people discover all sorts of unusual things about this and realize this wasn't a third-degree assault at all, but it was a second or maybe even a first-degree assault. Well, that's too bad. You cannot be put in the hazard again based on the same fact circumstances. So even if you find all these things out and the crime's much worse than you thought, you can't redo it. Now, some people are saying, yeah, but Rick, what about, you know, when people are found not guilty by state courts and then they're prosecuted by the feds for, like, civil rights violations or some other thing? Well, that's because double jeopardy does not apply to, and this is what the courts call it, separate sovereigns. So if you are prosecuted under a state law and found not guilty, it doesn't mean the feds cannot charge you in federal court for the same fact situation, but with a different federal law, because this is the court's reasoning. The federal government has a separate sovereign than the state government, because the power to have courts, or well, the police power really, resides from the governor, and the police power for the feds involves, <laughs> I know I laugh when I say this, the president is, is now, if you can imagine that. So that can happen. And if some of you remember the Rodney King case, some of those officers were found not guilty of state charges, but then were prosecuted for civil rights violations. That does not offend the double jeopardy clause in the Constitution. But if you spin that around a little bit and think about it, this is just what I was thinking, and I kind of wonder about it, is let's say that you take a fact circumstance that really could be charged a couple of different ways, maybe more than a couple of different ways, some much more egregious than others. And you purposely charge it at the lowest level you can, like our example about third-degree assault versus second- or first-degree assault. And once a person takes that deal, pleads guilty to it, and there is a the plea is entered, and at sentencing or whatever the case may be, at some point, jeopardy attaches. Now, when you have jury trials, jeopardy usually attaches uh, when the jury is sworn in and things like that. But in this situation, so now... Someone has entered a plea, and they have been subjected to the power of the state over a certain fact circumstance. See, we get caught up in the crime, but what the Jeopardy, is talk, Jeopardy Clause talks about is the fact circumstance. So to some extent, if you say Hunter's been involved in something that this tax situation, but there's a lot of different things attached to it that could be charged differently. Well, if what you charge him with at a much lower level is the same fact situation and he pleads to that you cannot come back and charge him again like say if there's a new attorney general down the road or a new administration can't look into it and say hey the statute of limitations hasn't run out yet and this situation was much worse than what he pled to no it's done and then the question would arise how much of the same fact situation would be the basis of the new charge versus the old charge? But it's an interesting way to insulate someone from a more serious charge by rushing in and having them plead to something much less egregious for that same fact situation. That's how that kind of works, at least in my understanding. And I, I just wonder about that. I wonder if some of these charges that Hunter's been pleading to are part of a larger 
problem that this may insulate him from some charges or something else. I don't even know. I just, this is just thoughts, just random thinking, you know. I mean, the criminal justice system is a tricky bit of business sometimes. And you can make it work for you if you're smart enough or if you learn the ropes there. So that was just something that's occurred to me. And we don't know enough about these fact situations yet. It is charging to know if there is other aspects of the fact situation that could be charged differently. I guess we will have to see. I know that uh, we said in the last segment, you know, a lot of people are hoping the court will reject this plea agreement. I I would say there's about a 30% chance that might happen. I'm not saying it necessarily won't, but I think it's pretty low. Uh, not super low, but pretty low. So there's that. And then let's talk a minute about... Uh, well, well, we're going to talk. I, I don't want to change gears too much, but I think uh, we're going to clean our palate here a little bit. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the facts behind this uh, affirmative action ruling in the Supreme Court that the left has lost their mind over and why it isn't nearly as big a deal as they would like you to believe on the left, but it has been a big deal where it was being misused. So getting doing away with it I don't think is... Big a deal in terms of what the left is saying about it. So we'll get back to that. I wanted to bring up something. Some people were talking. You know, last week I talked about a great book by Barbara Tuckman, historian, called The First Salute. About the and really kind of a small part, but an important part of American history about our sovereignty and about how the, the Dutch were the first people to recognize it and sort of the intricacies of, of how, how all this trade and everything else worked out. It's really a good book. And Barbara Tuckman was a great writer for that. She really has a way of bringing history right to you and, and, and telling a story. You know, not, it's not dry like that. Well, some people were interested in what she's written and what else she'd written. And so I, and I'd mentioned it, but I didn't get into it. She wrote a great book. I want to say it was like, oh man, I I, I couldn't tell you. Maybe seventies, mid to late seventies. She wrote this great book uh, called A Distant Mirror. And for a while, in the days when people were actually un- understood and taught history, it was pretty much required reading in college for anybody taking some history classes, Western Civ stuff like that, and. What it is about was about uh, the 14th century. I think the uh, title was A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous 14th Century. One of the reasons the 14th century is so interesting to historians is that it is a time when a lot of the nation states that we see now were forming. Now, of course, they've they've went in and out of various iterations. Austro-Hungarian Empire disappears, Czechoslovakia shows up, then it's the Czech Republic. I mean, all of that. But what she's talking about uh, during this time is the actual idea of nation states, countries, in other words, not just uh, regions and how that was coming about. And she does that by following uh, sort of one of the an important family it happens to be some French aristocrats. Uh, look at this guy. I got this guy's name. It's uh, the Decousy. Uh, Decousy. He's uh, a French aristocrat and follows his family because they're right in the middle of what's going on. And of course, France in this time is a major player 
about who they align with and trying to figure out their boundaries. Because remember, and many of you know this, and we've talked about it, that for quite some time, or periodically it kind of waned in and out during the Hundred Years' War, the King of Britain really controlled more land in what we think of as France now than he did in Britain. And and Anjou, uh, Normandy, you know, their Calais was a big part of, uh, you know, their stepping stone into the continent and into France. And so as France solidified and pretty much was trying to throw off a lot of this, they weren't really successful for a long time, but this is where it all starts forming up. And it's fascinating to see all of these uh, various uh, threads coming about of both the church at the time and sort of the idea of monarchy and all kinds of things. It's there. It's a good book. And one of the things that was interesting about it is the church, the Roman Catholic church plays an important part in this. And uh, remember at this point, they had two popes, one in Avignon in France and one in Rome. And neither one recommend recognized the other as being legitimate led to a lot of interesting situations, and she talks about that, too. So I would recommend that book. Okay, everybody, we've rounded the horn here on the uh, show. I appreciate your sticking around for it. Uh, let's see here. We were talking at the end of the last segment a little bit about uh, Barbara Tuckman, but we had also been talking about Hunter Biden's plea that is coming up here pretty soon and how that uh, might affect some double jeopardy issues that I've been musing about, uh, just because I think it is interesting. There's, I don't trust the Justice Department in any way. And I also think there are people who are trying to engineer a slick away in and out of this uh, mess with Hunter and Joe as they possibly can. And there are some uh, ins and outs in the law that could let them do that. So it doesn't hurt to muse on them a little bit. But going from the uh, real problems to the surreal problems, uh, we have uh, Joe Biden himself, uh, the president, strange to say, uh, this week, really showing his mettle, misquoted the Constitution after the affirmative action ruling, which we'll talk a little bit about here in a minute, uh, because I had a couple of little, little parts I think were illuminating it in a different way, by uh, saying that uh, the Constitution said that all men were created equal. Of course, anybody that used to go to uh, like fourth or fifth grade realizes that that is from the Declaration of Independence. I'm surprised to remember that it was any of our founding documents, so we got to give him some credit for that. But many people don't think old Joe is actually going to be the 2024 nominee. And when you, when you see him lately at the, how fast he's like going downhill, you can understand that. Well, Tucker Carlson uh, also was wondering about that and who would replace him. And I thought it'd be just a good time before we dove into some other things to listen to what Tucker had to say. And I tried to get this soundbite from his Twitter show. Uh, on Twitter that he releases, it looks like every Tuesday and Thursday, and it's about 10 or 12 minutes long. This is a segment where he's talking about who could replace Joe if Joe drops out, and he thinks he probably will. Who could that person be? We don't know, obviously. This is all just guessing. But we do know whoever that is will have to have two essential criteria. He'll have to be as shallow, ruthless, and transactional as Joe Biden is, and he'll need to have flattery skills that are so polished and advanced they'd be considered superior even in the Saudi royal court. And there's only one man in modern America who fits that description. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, and perhaps not coincidentally, Joe Biden's new closest friend. I am here, Mr. President, Newsom told Biden at an event that you did together last week. I am here as a proud American, as a proud Californian. 
mesmerized by not just your faith and your devotion to this country and the world we're trying to build, but by your results, by your action, by your passion, by your capacity to deliver. <laughs> I am mesmerized by you, Joe Biden. <laughs> Imagine saying that as a compliment. You couldn't do it. Few human beings could do it. But Gavin Newsom had no problem at all. Those words rolled right off his forked tongue. He never stopped smiling. So there's <laughs> there's Tucker's take on that, which I thought was great. Uh, I don't know where this is all leading to. With I don't know where this goes with Joe Biden. I don't think anybody really does. There's a lot of guessing out there. My guess would be that he's convinced he's going to run president 2024, if he knows it is 2024. Uh, Jill, I'm sure, is pushing that pretty hard because she likes being, you know, I suspect at least some sort of power behind the throne there. And it has become increasingly a throne with the way they're running things up there. It is less and less a republic and more and more of a strange sort of aristocracy. But as we see, he's just faltering so much that pretty soon I don't think he's going to be able to appear really in public at all, except for just two or three minutes at a time. And he's not going to be able to answer any questions. Even the most softball questions from the most friendly outlets is getting to be too much for him. Uh, we saw this week, you know, this he was on Nicole Wallace, who's just a terrible, terrible interviewer and a sycophant of the first order uh, on MSNBC. She was discussing, and of course, she didn't ask anything about Hunter or any of these other problems that are going on. Really nothing important. But then at the end of the interview, he just gets up and just wanders across the set out of sight. You know, I mean, he just uh, had, and he has this strange forward lean that, that is troubling to look at. Uh it's just none of it is good. I didn't see any sandbags, though. And there were no sandbags anywhere for him to hurl himself over, I suppose. But it, it it's obvious that things are just not going to play out for him, right? He's he's just on the edge. Now, can they push him to 2024, the election, and then maybe uh, just slowly push him into the background in 2020, late 2024? I don't know, maybe. Their problem is Kamala, and uh, as many know, she's so wildly unpopular that they're not sure that she can even sell any of these, even if she were the sort of shadow puppet uh, president. And they certainly don't want Joe to pull out and leave Kamala as the nominee. But it, it's harder than that for someone like Gavin Newsom and just to stroll in there, no matter how much is mesmerized by uh, Joe, is they chose Kamala at sort of a last-ditch effort because he decided he was going to have a certain kind of candidate without looking into who was really available at the time. And they came up with Kamala. Now they're stuck with her. And there's a there's contingent out there that if they try and pass the vice president, who's usually the assumed a mantle bearer for uh, the next election with Gavin Newsom, uh, a white male, which, you know, is hard to imagine in the, in the Democrat Party, the way they're running things lately and, you know, as a, as a viable candidate uh, to just, you know, step over her would uh, would be very difficult. It's not like they can say, well, look, he's a much better candidate. And in a sense, he is. It's hard for us as conservatives to to understand how that can be seen that way when you look at the mess California's in. And also, if you just listen to Gavin Newsom, he, he doesn't really have anything to say. He talks around things. 
I saw his interview with Hannity, uh, and he just he he knows the questions that are going to going to come forward, which is one of the problems with Hannity. I mean, he's you know what he's going to ask a long time before, and there's never any probing afterwards. Really, there's some arguing, but you know, there, there's plenty of things going on in California that you can breeze past where. Uh, Gavin Newsom's defense there is, oh, well, we've, we've done this, we've done that, and, you know, yeah, but what's really happened with this? What's been the upshot of that? And, you know, when you ask about the homeless population, he just talks about what a problem it is everywhere, and that's, and it just goes right past it. You know, just zoop. And it is hard to, to take someone that slick down, but it doesn't mean they're that bright. And Newsom certainly fits that bill. Slick, but not particularly bright. And he's been groomed and sort of fit into someplace. It's sort of like, once again, a, a sort of a medieval aristocracy where these people are trained to do certain things. It doesn't mean that they have acquired them on their own or that they're smart like that they appear to be, but they're trained to appear to be a certain way. Gavin Newsom's perfect with that. And he loves the idea of it. He's just fine. So he, he appears to us as like just nothing there. I mean, and, and everything he's done is just go along with a radical agenda because it makes him popular in a party he'd like to lead. And it seems obvious to us, but that's because we're looking at it differently. We look at the standard of living of California and what's happened to it. Uh, many people who grew up in the 60s and 70s and 80s, remember California was someplace that really seemed kind of cool. You know, I mean, that's where all the ideas for the neat new cars came from, right? I mean, people who were uh, driving all sorts of... Uh, New ideas about, you know, how to make your car look a certain way. And, you know, we remember the Beach Boys, you know, with, with their 409 and, uh, you know, let's see, was it a little deuce coupe? I don't think that was a Beach Boys song. I have to think about that. But that whole culture out there. And it seemed like a land of opportunity and all sorts of things. And so it took a lot of work to beat it into the mess that it is now. And so we just say, well, this is so sad. Well, a lot of people don't have that memory. All they see is someone committing policies that they agree with. And the results, who cares? And remember, the results, and we've talked about this before, we always believe as conservatives and regular normal people that if you keep trying something and it has bad results, that maybe you'll quit trying and decide that it wasn't a bad, that it was a bad idea. The left never believes it's a bad idea. The left believes, and this they've been, this is just a way they've been taught, and it, it's very effective because it keeps them just pounding all the time because they won't give up. They've been taught that they're not successful in these things because of conservatives, Republicans, middle-of-the-road people, whatever, independents, that won't give them enough power, won't give them enough money, won't get out of the way. And the reason these projects stall is not because they're bad ideas or they're economically unfeasible or they ignore human nature to a large degree. No, they're unfeasible because Republicans and conservatives and people on the other political side stop them from having the necessary tools they need to make these things work, which if you really listen to them at the end of it, the necessary tools they think they need to have are pretty much dictatorial. They should decide everything because they know best. And you see that crystallized in a very obvious way during the pandemic with this idea of science. I mean, it, it's got to the point where I, I hated to hear the word because it almost always came like, well, you disagree with science. You just, 
lot of people have disagreed with science over time, and they, many times they've been right. And science is never a settled thing, is it? Uh, I, I read a lot of uh, things about astrophysics and astronomy and things. This is one of my interests. And they're constantly revising their theories and going in, into different ways. And particularly if you're looking at modern physics, uh, it's never settled. Everybody has an idea. And now we're at the point where there's something that they can't explain. There's two or three theories about it. It's not settled science. That's real science. Some of the things that they've latched onto here mean that we want to freeze something at, in the moment, right? We want to preserve it in amber, and that's the way things are and always will be. And anybody that questions that will be shunned or, you know, placed uh, into the wilderness and uh, left to die. It's a very, as we say, uh, a fervent and maniacal religious sense that they've substituted for a connection with the infinite by worshiping these other things. And we've seen that throughout history. I mean, it's from time to time it's popped up. It's just much more clear now, and it's much more widespread because the ability to spread that thinking is so much easier now through the way we receive media and news and think about how quickly we learn things or no, I don't know if we actually learn them, but we learn about things, whether they're true or not. It's difficult to say sometimes. Never in human history have people been so inundated with information and really been able to understand, or rather comprehend is a better way, uh, what it all means. Because it just comes fast and furious, and everyone wants to tell you what it means. Now, they don't want you to think about it, they don't want you to listen to them. So, uh, someone who's an empty vessel like Joe, or even Kamala, and certainly Gavin, is an essential tool for that kind of thinking and that kind of government because you want people behind the you want a good face that can deliver a message in the meantime while the bureaucratic administrative state cranks away to have increased power and bureaucratic uh, sort of say over everything because that's what will solve all your problems get out of the way stop making your own mind up stop thinking about things like you have some idea about what's going on in your own life these people have a plan, and they have a bureaucracy to back that plan up, and they just need the muscle of the state and a lot of money, and they make your life, uh, well, they'll remake your life in a way that they think you should like. Dodatareko is saying you'll do it and you'll like it, because that's kind of the end of the bureaucratic and administrative state. And they think that this these politicians that they can essentially fill up and, and move about in any way allow them to do that, and can act as the face of this movement. So it's interesting to, to see that kind of thing. So let's get back, because it is related, because Joe has been out attacking this uh, decision from the Supreme Court on affirmative action, and it'll be mischaracterized uh, in much the same way that the Dobbs decision was characterized on abortion. Uh, this one is even even more easily to mischaracterize because there's some solid stuff to it that they will just flat not talk about. You know, with the Dobbs decision, it was, they've outlawed abortion. Well, no, what they've done is they've allowed the states to decide. And then you can argue with what you like the states are doing, but there's no outlawing from the Supreme Court. And that was the first step, and now it just went crazy. But what has happened in education is that race had entered into the selection process for colleges, particularly expensive or prestigious colleges, which, by the way, most of which don't give you a very good education anymore. They're too steeped in their own 
uh, history, their own legend, and their own philosophy, which is seldom connected to what we want. Uh, it's, it's elitist, and it's not necessarily meritorious. Not anymore. What was happening, and this was, was brought by a number of students against two colleges, you know, Harvard and North Carolina. Harvard is a, a prestigious college for reasons that are increasingly become hard to figure out. Uh, based on their graduates and the level of adroitness they have at whatever they've graduated in. But what was happening was it seemed as though, and this was was a, a great group to look at, Asian-American students were just not getting in. Uh, they were not getting in with tremendous test scores and uh, grades and all kinds of things. And they were just getting excluded. And it looked to, to them like other racial groups were, who were not as qualified in terms of grades and, you know, all this indicia we thought had something to do with being able to be successful in these in worlds of academia and what you come out for as a doctor, lawyer, or whatever the case may be. Um, they were, it seemed like they were doing very well in them, but people who had not done very well at all is showing the ability to master some of these traits were getting ahead of them. And so the, this lawsuit was brought. Now we talked about here before that you know that Sandra Day O'Connor was a swing vote that kind of kept affirmative action alive decades ago uh, by saying that well within you know a few years this affirmative action to raise diversity will no longer be necessary. Well, that's not the case. As a matter of fact, it just got worse. And so Harvard's decided decided to you know just just pluck people out based on ethnicity. And that seems to me to go against the whole idea of equal protection, which is what this was brought under, expectation of the law and the 14th Amendment and so forth. And I looked at some of the figures. The The guy that brought this was an Asian-American student who had a 1550 on his SAT, which is on a 1600. That's a pretty high grade. 3.9 GPA, had been chosen as he's from Canada and or he'd done some work in Canada, and he was uh, found thirty uh, the 30 top under 30. He had started his own company and everything. Didn't get in. And so when they, when they dug into some of these admission criteria, they they looked at this, and one of them that they, they really hit on was this eighth. They, they divide people up based on their grades and SAT scores uh, by 10 different categories. So you look at the eighth category which is just two from the top. Ten is the top in this. And if you look at the admission criteria, uh, in that group, the people who have done very, very well, not perfect, but very, very well, 7.5% of the white applicants were admitted. Uh, well, of the, those admitted, let's put it that way, of those admitted, 7.5% of the white were white applicants. 5.1% were Asian-American, 44.4% were African-American, and 17.3% were Hispanics. And we're not talking about as a percentage of the population, we're talking about of those that were admitted. Now, if you go all the way up to the 10th, in other words, the, the best, you'll see that the Asian-Americans are at 12.7, the African-Americans at 56.1, and... Uh, Caucasians are, are white, as they call it here, 15.3%. And so, the, well, what's going on? 
because so many of the Asian students, especially, and others, had really superior grades and scores. Well, they were basing it far too much on race. And the idea, to me, that you want a diverse environment is a great idea because it is a strong subject to have some sort of conversance in, is diversity and meet other people from other areas and other walks in life and different experiences. But the the place to make people competent is not at the very end of the educational gamut. It's back at the beginning, grade school, middle school, high school, so that you know they get the educational tools they need. What's happening is so many of the minority people come from inner cities. We see what messes those are. They're not they're not getting those tools. So the place to do that is to provide get those tools to them in areas where they really need to build them up, and not just try and impose it on the end. And the Asian students had always had a bit of an up because the Asian culture apparently uh, is uh, they are very when they come from the Pacific Rim, that's an area where educational achievement is very important to moving forward at all. And so they really work their children, sometimes a little, little pretty hard, uh, to have high grades and do all these sorts of things. And they usually have extracurricular activities, playing instruments, and so forth. And that should be enough. And if that's the best of the best, then that's where you should try and probably let them in. And if you're not getting the rest of the population, it doesn't seem to be served by in some statistical way, you should say, well, what's going on? And you're, what you're going to see is probably not that people are excluding people because of race. Here it looks like they were including them uh, based on that overly too overly much. But to say, well, what what what? How are we hampering these people? Well, you go back into what is essentially the failures of of the educational system, and a lot of which is been supported and put forward by teachers' unions, uh, the Democrat Party and just a whole liberal area so that, so that the institutions are weak and a lot of them are in poor areas. And so you just perpetuate this problem. And so trying to fix it at the top isn't, isn't the key. It doesn't mean you, you shouldn't try and foster diversity by increasing the ability and access of some of these groups to a good education so that they can compete on a higher level at the end of the educational spectrum and not just try and fix it at the very end. You know, by you know, making standards based on something other than just the meritorious uh, work that someone has done. And so this is what the court has tried to say. It'll be misinterpreted and called all sorts of names and this and that, of course. Um, I mean, but that's just how politics works these days. But it's an important decision and probably in the right direction. But we should also follow up with an understanding of we need to revamp the school system in general to give everybody an opportunity to have a solid base of scholastic aptitude. That's just what I think. We'll see you next week.